The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Amen. Thank you, guys. Hey, as you're sitting, grab your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 2 Corinthians. And um, I would love it if you'd plan ahead also um, for a little bit later when we'll be in 2 Chronicles. 2 Corinthians this morning, chapter 12, and 2 Chronicles will start, will be in chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible, if you would, just stick a hand up nice and high. Some kind gentlemen will come down the aisle and make sure that you get one. We think it's important that you be able to follow along in the Word with us. If you don't own a Bible, that is a gift to you, and we pray that that would just bless you um, in your relationship and your growing knowledge of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and then eventually in 2 Chronicles. All those pages turning right now are looking for 2 Chronicles. It's about right here, if that helps. Page 596. Good to be with you guys this morning. How many of you have ever thought to yourself, if I was different, maybe God would be able to use me more? Or if I didn't struggle with that thing, maybe then I would be winning at life, or I would, or I would be able to be used more by God, or, or if I didn't have that insecurity or that weakness, maybe then I could actually make a difference, but for now... Today we're going to look at the fact that everybody has a place of weakness, of personal insecurities. Everyone does. And Satan has this tendency, and we'll call it straight up habit, to come alongside us when we're in the middle of those things and to whisper in our ear and to try to spin us out over those very things, to make it crippling and debilitating. No longer just a weakness or a hindrance or, or a shortcoming, but something that is absolutely debilitating for us. And we're going to be looking at this from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, as you guys know, if you've been tracking with us for any length of time, we've been working our way through 2 Corinthians for a good while now. Um, and we are definitely winding it out. I think at most we have two more messages left in here, maybe even just one, depending on how ambitious I am for next week. But like I told you, it's vacation week. You never know. So we're going to be done really soon, moving into Galatians, which I could not be happier about. Galatians is going to be fun I mean, when, when Paul writes 2 Corinthians, he's writing from a place of heartbrokenness. When, when he writes Galatians, he's, and I don't mean this sinfully, he's righteously angry, and it shows. And there is some fiery stuff that guy has to say. Some stuff that you're going to come across and go, I didn't know that was in the Bible, and it's going to be fun. So we're going to really look forward to going through Galatians together. Um, but right now, we're in 2 Corinthians And Paul, as you know, is writing to a church he had planted many years earlier that's had lots of highs and a lot more lows, and he's addressed them over time in previous letters, and now in 2 Corinthians, he's writing to them, and the primary portion of what he's doing now in this particular part of the letter is he's dealing with these quote-unquote super apostles that have kind of come into Corinth and been speaking all manner of really just false doctrine, throwing Paul under the bus, and they've sort of trying to railroad what God has been doing in this church. And instead of encouraging them to follow Paul, their father in the faith, they're, they're encouraging these people to start following them. And they're preaching a false gospel, a very prosperity-driven gospel. Um, and they're, they're just 
really trying to garner their own attention, their own following, and they're throwing Paul into the bus left and right. And so Paul is left in this really uncomfortable position of having to defend his ministry. He even refers to it as foolishness. He says in chapter 11, if you could just bear with me in this foolishness. And he says, please bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you. And later he'll say, and besides, you've put up with this kind of foolishness from them. Because these guys have come in and they've thumped their own chest and rolled out their resumes and kind of puffed themselves up. Meanwhile, throwing Paul into the bus. And so he's left with no other option than to come in and defend himself. Something he doesn't want to do. And as he's doing this, he's been accused of cowardice. They've said of him, man, Paul writes a really good letter from a distance, but when he came in person, he's just a coward. He can't stand on any of this kind of stuff. I mean, he's just weak. He's controlling you from a distance, but dude's a coward. He's been accused of being devious with regards to money, that he's really only after money. And sure, he's not asking you for money for his service now, but he's telling you that the money's for some other church. Meanwhile, right now he's living off the money that came from the other church. He's just, it's just a scam. Paul's been accused of even being, and this is more specific to today's particular text, kind of a, I don't know, a suspect member of God's kingdom. You might, you might say a second-class member of the kingdom of God. These are guys that are very polished, very proper. They're first-class, if you will, in their opinion at least, in the way they project themselves in the kingdom of God. And, and Paul, man, he's rough around the edges to be sure. And he's weak and he's struggled through things. And they're constantly throwing Paul under the bus as like, man, that guy isn't even really, I mean, if he's a part of the kingdom of God, then, then he's like, uh, I don't know, he's a trailer at best. I mean, this guy, look at him. And Paul even says to them in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, he says, not that we dare classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they're not with understanding. He says, look, these guys are puffing themselves up. They're writing their own resume and their own re letters of recommendation. And then they're comparing themselves to other people. And they don't even understand the very basis by which we in the kingdom of God should compare ourselves. And so Paul ends up having to defend himself now. Now, don't misunderstand. Paul is not defending himself for the sake of his own reputation. This isn't Paul going, hey, I was wronged and I need to take advantage. I, you need to set the record straight. I'm not the guy you say I am. This isn't about Paul worrying what someone else thinks of him. This is Paul defending himself because of his ministry and the message that he has been preaching, specifically the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's defending himself so that the gospel that he has brought to the city can be defended. Not thumping his own chest by any stretch of the imagination. He says also in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 17, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one that the Lord commends. So in other words, what Paul's saying is this. What someone else says about us, really in the grand scheme of things, long term, matters very little. Matters very little. People come and go. Opinions come and go. Even less still, what we say about ourselves matters very little because we look through a glass dimly. Our hearts deceive our own selves. And, and this whole chest thumping, don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done? That stuff, Paul's just like, that just doesn't even matter. What he's saying that matters is what the Lord says about us, how God feels about us. And so Paul is here to defend his position and his calling in Christ, not to pad his resume or make himself look good because his ego has been bruised. And so Paul responds to some of their boasting. 
They've been boasting about, look, we are this and we are that and our message is this and look how polished and look how amazing we are. And so Paul answers all of this, particularly this accusation that he's not a real, genuine, first class, if you will, citizen of the kingdom of God, certainly not one of God's chosen leaders. I mean, look at this guy. And so Paul responds, if you'll look back in chapter 11, with some boasting of his own, but it's quite different from theirs. In verse 18, he says, Since many boast according to the flesh, then I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being so wise yourselves. For if you bear with it, someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. But whatever else, whatever anyone else dares boast of, and I'm speaking as a fool. He's, I, I feel weird even doing this, but he says, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews, speaking of these false teachers that have come into Corinth? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Like he's, I don't like doing this. He's clearly uncomfortable as he writes. And he says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I have received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, Oregon, that's not what that means. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and the Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Artis was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Think about what he's doing here. Okay, these guys are saying, Paul, he's not even a real apostle. Just look at this guy. I mean, the stuff he's been through should just be proof that he doesn't have God's blessing on him. This guy's a coward and he's weak. And Paul boasts by saying, yeah, more than you know, I've been through everything. And even this whole idea of being a coward and running, he even finishes off by saying, and by the way, someone was out to get me and I had to be let down in a basket like some baby or something outside the wall of the city. And interesting to know too, in Rome, there was an actual award that was given out. It was kind of the, assembly, the, the uh, like a distinguished service cross or something in our military. And it was given specifically to soldiers who showed just incredible bravery specifically. If there was a city that was a you know, walled city and an army was invading, they would end up having to storm the fortress of this city, often by putting ladders up and climbing up this ladder and having to kind of storm over the walls of these different cities, which was very dangerous. Obviously, people are there waiting. They're going to kick the ladders over. There's arrows, boiling hot oil, all sorts of things. And a lot of times, the person who was the first guy to go over that wall, who usually died, was the person who's awarded with this sort of distinguished honor for courage. That was a well-known award at the time. And Paul's like, first one over the wall, I was actually let down in a basket because people were after me. 
And that's weird boasting, right? Not exactly what you would think a guy arguing to preserve his reputation in front of people who claim his weaknesses and struggles mean he's not genuine. He's actually pointing to his weaknesses and to his struggles as evidence of the fact that he is genuine. And then he goes even further. I mean, he's, he's boasted about the fact, I, I'm, I'm as Jewish as it gets. They're claiming that's important. That's me. He's boasted about skill, strength, stature. He's dealt with all of those kind of things. And now he kind of moves into this new area as we move into chapter 12, which is where we're going to be camped out today. And it's this area of sort of, let's call it spiritual experiences, visions, dreams, this sort of thing. Like Paul goes into this area where they had clearly been boasting about their different experiences, spiritual experiences, and here's what he says in chapter 12. Look at verse 1. I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now you're going to see as this plays out that he's speaking of himself. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. And so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness." Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, track with Paul here. They're boasting about spiritual experiences, visions, and all these, and Paul has in his back pocket... One that he mentions here, and another that we know of from even his very conversion, that could trump any, anything that they could possibly bring up. His conversion, face to face with Jesus Christ himself, that's pretty good. And then in this case right here, Paul speaks about this vision that he had where God literally brings him, pulls back the curtains, and gives him this vision into heaven, into eternity. Now imagine that. Imagine these men, they're just boasting about, oh, I've done this, and I've had this, and and, and I've healed this person, or whatever spiritual experience it is. And Paul has in his pocket the ultimate trump card where he can come in and say, God took me to heaven. Bam, I'm out. I win. Like, how do you, you can't beat that, right? He saw heaven, but he refuses to go there. He says, the things that I saw, I cannot even speak of. It would be unlawful for me to speak of, much less boast about, become arrogant about, puffed up about, prideful about. What a horrible sin. It's the kind of sin we really don't spend enough time thinking about or even talking about. There's a lot of sins that garner way bigger headlines. Uh, Addictions or sexual immorality or things like that. But, But pride, 
We should rank that higher than we do, frankly. I mean, think what the Bible says about pride. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Pride, arrogance, and the way of evil I hate. God says, I hate pride. He goes on to say in Proverbs 6.19 that there's six things that he hates. Seven that are an abomination before him that he hates He says, I hate lying. I hate a lying tongue. I hate when hands shed innocent blood. I hate when a heart is devising wicked plans. I hate when feet make haste to run to evil and wickedness. I hate when false brothers breathe out lies and when someone sows discord among my people. But the first thing on that list, he says, I hate, he says, haughty eyes, or in other words, pride. And so how much more to take something, a spiritual experience, an encounter, let's say, with God, something that we have experienced, and and to suddenly turn that into something that we start thumping our own chest about and begin to boast over and claim some sort of hierarchy because of? What a horrible thing to do. It's really the exact same thing that Paul talks about in Romans when he says that people elevated creation above the creator. They start worshiping the things God created instead of God himself. And we can do the same exact thing with regards to this. We can worship the experiences that God brings us into and we can get puffed up and just completely forget the fact that all of these things are supposed to point us to and bring us to worship of God himself. And these men here in Corinth among all the other things that they're boasting about and trying to puff themselves up and throw Paul into the bus, are boasting about these spiritual experiences and pointing them out as evidence that they're more holy, more favored by God, higher on the Christian ranking, if you will, if such a thing could possibly exist. And so Paul refuses to boast in that same way. He refuses to do so. And in fact, God has helped him with this. And this is where the passage becomes difficult maybe even scary for some. God says literally, or Paul says literally, that God gave him a thorn in the flesh. This is in verse seven. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Now think about this a second. Paul is saying that God gave him a thorn in the flesh, something that that a, a handicap intended to keep Paul in touch with his own limitations. Now, now, I want you to grab this a second. Think about this. God has given him something. God has given him a difficulty, a handicap, something that's limiting him to keep him in touch with his own limitations. It was good for Paul, in light of what God was doing in his life, it was good for Paul that he be limited or in touch with his own weaknesses and limitations. Now, the reason I say this is so important for you to hear because this flies in the face of everything that the world around us is teaching us, especially our kids. Have you been to a high school graduation service anytime recently? Them speeches? Ugh. Those speeches. All those kids are gathered, right? And this guy gets up here and gives the speech, and it's what we do. I know. I'm not trying to mock it too much, but, but it stands up there and they talk about the fact that we can live beyond our limitations, we can conquer all our weaknesses. They say, you are the greatest generation that has ever graced the halls of these school. The future is in your hands and you can do anything. And if we were really honest for a moment, we would look at them and go, you mean these guys? You know there's a reason we put the robes on, it's to hide 
who we're actually talking about in those ceremonies, right? Because you're looking, I'm like, he's picking his nose. She's got gum in her hair. That huckster back there, I know he doesn't have clothes on under that robe. Like, this group is a mess, and a bunch of them are going to be drunk in three hours, passed out, celebrating this graduation, and you just told them the future is in your hands? Lock the doors. I would never be like, if I ever got invited to give one of those speeches, it would be the last time that I would ever be invited to give one of those speeches, because I, I would just look at it completely the opposite. I would just say, kids, look, I love you, but look, I see you. You're a feeble bag of humanity, the whole lot of you. If we lined you head to head, you couldn't reach a conclusion at this point, and, and my advice to all the people that are here is increase your insurance coverage. Let us pray. Like, that's what I would say. No, okay, we're joking, we're laughing, but let me say this, high school kids, before you're too offended. <clears throat> this is all of us. We're not limitless, none of us. I don't care how young you are or how old you are. I don't care how gifted you are or how weak you feel you are. There is no one in this room, no one that can walk beyond our limitations. In fact, I would say this, Every single one of us is weak. Weak. You say, I'm not weak. I'm not limitations, man. I'm valedictorian, baby. Like, I'm a successful businessman. I have built this empire. I've done all this kind of stuff. I know that. And you are one phone call away from your entire life changing. You know that? You're one doctor saying the word cancer away from everything changing. You're one drunk driver headed the wrong way on a road from no longer standing on your own two feet but being completely dependent on everyone. We are fragile, every single one of us. No one stands on their own two feet and is impervious from these sorts of weakness. We are limited. We just are. And then Paul goes on to say this. Not only did God give him this thorn in the flesh, but, but he calls it a messenger from Satan. And this is debated. And this whole thing is debated. People go, well, what does that mean, this thorn in the flesh? What was it Paul struggled with? Was it a physical limitation? What, was it a, an ailment? Was he crippled somehow or, or in pain somehow? Was it, um, what, was it the persecutions that he's been through? Was it relational issues? I mean, for a guy to be in the position he was before he converted to Christianity, it was required that you be married, but we never hear anything else about his family. Did his family bail on him when he became a Christian? Is he dealing with that? Or is it just plain despair and discouragement, which we have spent a significant amount of time going through Corinthians looking at the reality that Paul dealt with stuff. He even mentioned this very passage, anxiety. And so what is it? What is it that Paul's dealing with? And in reality... It doesn't matter because all of us are weak in different areas. Something that might be, God might be using in your life to keep you humble, to deal with you, to grow you through, might be completely different from someone else. If we tried to classify that, we would miss out on what God's actually trying to do in our own lives. So it doesn't matter what Paul was dealing with, but he was struggling with something and it was perpetual. And then he calls it also, though, a messenger from Satan. So people debate that too. What does that mean? Does that mean like God lets some demon just possess or harass or what is that talking about? And that's debated too. I really don't know for sure the extremities of what that could really mean, but I do believe that it at least means this. I do believe it at least means this. The Bible says that Satan is an accuser of the brethren. 
And I know for me and for many of you that I've got to spend time with, when we're dealing with something, when we're going through a thorn in the flesh, if you will, when we're facing weaknesses, Satan has this way of coming alongside and getting in your ear and saying, it's never going to go away. It'll always be there. Who are you? Who are you, Jeff, to stand up in front of those people? They don't know you. Oh, if they did, they would not be heritage today. And you'll never change. Or, hey, Paul, all this gospel you're preaching, do you really believe it? All this stuff about the power of God? Because you're preaching how God comes to set people free. And you're preaching how God comes to deliver people. And, and, and you're still struggling. And you're the apostle. You don't think that even the very accusations that those false apostles made against Paul, saying, look, his struggles are proof that he is not one of God's people. You don't think he thought that from time to time? You don't think he didn't go through times where he just went, God, come on. I, I'm, it's enough that I'm shipwrecked and stuck on this island. Did I, ha I got bit by a snake. God, for Pete's sake, man. You don't think he wrestled with some of those kind of things? He's just like you and me. We have this way of reading the Bible where we picture people as just sort of floating through clouds on everything. It's not true. The gospel guarantees it's not true. And Paul wrestled with discouragement, and he wrestled with despair. He wrestled with depression. And so then Satan comes alongside and says, Paul, you're wrong, man. That vision you had before, that was just bad pizza. You think that you're going to get through this stuff, man? Still there. And so what does Paul do with that? He's dealing with it. Satan's whispering in his ear that it's never going to go away. He's got this major weakness that he's always wrestling with. So what do you do? You go to God, right? Well, that's what Paul did. Verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. Like three times. Paul goes to his knees before God and begs him, please take this away. Please take this away. It, it reminds me, actually, and I hope it would all of us, as we're always looking for Christ in the scriptures. Doesn't it remind you of Gethsemane? Three times, Christ is in Gethsemane, praying, Lord, if there's any other way, will you take this cup from me? And then getting up and coming over to the apostles and saying, guys, can you not just stay up and pray with me for just a little bit, for goodness sakes? And they're asleep. And then he goes back three times, praying, Lord, if there's any other way. The word used in the Gospels to describe what Jesus was dealing with there, and be careful on this, don't take me into some sinful, like, panicky sort of area, but the word, biblically, the original word there is actually the same word for anxiety. That's what Jesus was dealing with. There was tremendous pressure on him. So here's Paul going to the Lord in the same way, three times, Lord, take this. Lord, I'm begging you, pleading, begging take this. And the answer he gets is in verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's not the answer maybe we would want. We like what? Okay, <laughs> that's what we want. I'm glad you asked, Jeff. Poof. But that's not the answer Paul gets. The answer Paul gets, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Now that answer, understand, did absolutely nothing to change the situation that Paul was in. 
it did nothing to change the actual predicament. His ailment did not change because of those prayers. His attitude did. His attitude did. Because he goes on, and we, again, don't know how long it took him to get here. I'm not saying that he prayed, God said, my grace is sufficient for you, and he said, fine with me, and started bouncing on clouds the rest of the week. I'm not saying that at all. For some of us, it can take a while to get to a place like this. But Paul's response then is, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, I'm content with weakness, insult, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let me tell you this. You want to know how to amount to nothing for God? I will help you. If you want to amount to nothing for God, then convince yourself that you've got it all under wraps. Convince yourself you have it all together, that you have the ability that you need to do what's before you, that you don't need any help. Convince yourself you're strong. That is a surefire way to mean nothing eternally for the kingdom of God. This is just the reality. It is a good thing for us to be aware of the limitations and the weaknesses that each one of us face. It is a good thing because God uses these to drive us into dependence on him who is the actual source of power for all of us in our life and the only legitimate good and real one. He's not withholding. He's guiding us to the actual source of power that we need to deal with what's before us. In spite of our weaknesses, he's guiding us to be dependent on him. But to convince ourselves of our own strength and our own ability is a recipe for failure. There's a couple of stories in the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles that I wanted you to turn to that really picture this the best. And I do have the text, I think, we added this kind of last second, so I, I do have the text to put up on the screen. But if you do have your Bibles and you plan ahead, I do want you to read along with me on these because I'm hoping this is text you will return to. So let's start out in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 with King Uzziah. And let's look at an example of how to fail 2015. This is essentially the New Year's message, right? The New Year coming up. So let's look first at 2 Corinthians chapter 26 for an example of how to blow it in 2015. Ready for this? We're going to start in verse 3. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign. Pause. (laughs) 16 years old and he's king. High school kids, see, I'm not picking on you that much. This is 16 years old, and he is now king, king of Judah. And so he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Weird of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father, Amaziah, had done. Now listen, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. And he went out and he made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabneh and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. He's building empires in enemy territory. And God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal and against the Meonites. And the Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah, and his his fame spread even to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. 16-year-old guy that started now, keep that in mind. 
And moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, and at the angle, and fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness, and he cut out many cisterns, for he had large herds, both in Shephelah, if I got that right, probably not, and in the plain. And he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. This guy's profiting. He's, he's fruitful in everything. He's digging wells to grow more gardens. He's got vineyards popping up everywhere. He loves the soil. He's not just a military genius, but he's growing the economy and the agriculture of the land. Verse 11, moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war in divisions according to the numbers of the muster made by Jeal, the secretary, and I don't know, the officer, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. And the whole number of the heads of the fathers' houses of mighty men of valor was 2,600. And under their command was an army of 307,500 who could make, more with, make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Uzziah prepared for all the military, for all the army, shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, stone for slinging. In Jerusalem, he made engines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far for, watch this, for he was marvelously helped, comma, till he was what? Strong. When he was seeking the Lord as a young kid, in over his head, Choosing to follow his father's wisdom and seek the wisdom and counsel of God, God led him and was blessing him and was prospering him, and he did amazing until somewhere along the line, success made him start thinking it was him. That's the danger of a lot of success. That's the danger of a growing empire is that sometimes you can start to think that it's about you, and it happened with him. Verse 16 says, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Verse 19, and then Uzziah was angry. He was angry. He's been able to accomplish anything he set his hand to. He's exceeded everywhere. He's become incredibly successful. And then he decides, you know what? I don't need to depend on priests to do this offering thing. Man, I am blessed. Look at how God has blessed me. Look at what God has done for me. I'm going to go into the temple. I'm going to go in here myself, and I'm going to do the sacrifices myself. I don't, I don't need to depend on these priests. And he goes against the very law and order of God to offer these sacrifices of himself, on his own. And when the priests come in and stop him and say, this isn't for you. You're not allowed to do this. This is wrong. It will bring you no honor before God. You can't do this. He reacts with this prideful and all too familiar for all of us. Do you know who I am? Don't you see what I've done? What have you done? Priests, staying here and pray all day probably. Work one day a week. I get that all the time. Work one day a week. Do nothing. Do you know who I am? 
What have you done? And he becomes angry. Sometimes the more gifted you are, the harder it is to receive correction. Be aware of that. Because we can think we got it all under wraps. Who are you to tell me when I'm this? This is what he's dealing with. And it says, now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him and behold, he was leprous in his forehead and they rushed him out quickly. And he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper, lived in a separate house for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. What a heartbreaking end to a tremendous story. He was so strong until he got strong. And then it just became about him. You want to fail 2015? Make it about you. Start thinking you got this covered. I don't need to pray anymore. I got this. I don't need to get up and spend time with the Lord. I got this. I don't need to depend on anybody else. I don't need to take their wisdom. I don't need to listen to his correction or her counsel. I got this. You will fail. 2000, you'll fail life. Now, what's the alternative to that? The Bible gives us an equally compelling how to pass 2015. Look at chapter 20, just a couple of pages to the left. Same book, chapter 20. One of the best names in the Bible, we have Jehoshaphat. First name, jumping. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1, it says this. This is before Uzziah was in charge. This is a different era for the kingdom. And it says, After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, with some of them Menunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. And the men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazah, that is in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid to set his face to seek the Lord. No, excuse me, I read that wrong. This is important. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the, the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. So, so picture this story. Jehoshaphat finds that an army is coming to invade, and he knows he's outnumbered. He knows he's too weak to pull this off. He knows there is no way they're going to survive this without help, and he is afraid. He is absolutely aware of his own limitations. He is absolutely aware of his own weakness. He is very clear of the situation ahead. And instead of taking matters into his own hands, he chooses to turn to God. In fact, he calls the whole nation to turn to God, calls them into a fast collectively, which fasting, we don't have time for a full dissertation on this, but fasting is literally a way to declare dependence on God itself. So he calls all the people together for prayer and fasting, and he calls this assembly. Everyone's there together. And he says in verse 6, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, 
If disaster comes on us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they have rewarded us by coming to drive us out of your possession that you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. It's the polar opposite of what King Uzziah was dealing with. King Uzziah is saying, I know what to do. Don't need to put my eyes upon you, Lord. I got this. Jehoshaphat says, in the face of his weakness, in the face of his fear, in the face of these limitations, we don't know what to do. All we know to do is turn our eyes upon you. It says in verse 13, Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, on Benaiah, son of Jeiel, upon Matniah, a Levite, the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly, and he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Israel and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but whose? God's. It's not about you. It's not about you. The battle is God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Look at that, verse 17 again. You should highlight that one if you got it. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Amen. Now, I, not, not to give, you know, if you want to read it later, you can, but God wins. Deliverance comes. Now, look at the difference of these two. We have a man who became strong, said, I got this. I have succeeded in everything I've done. I am wise enough. I'm smart enough. I know what I'm doing. I got this. He takes his eyes off the Lord, and it was his doom. We have another man who was absolutely weak. This is the king. We don't really want our lead politicians, our national leaders, our generals, to stand up in the midst of, uh, of a threat. We're not really fine with hearing them say, I don't know what to do. Like, we want plans, Right? But here's this man in his weakness who stands before God and says, we do not know what to do, but our eyes upon you. And God says, that's my boy. You know what? Don't worry about it. It's not your fight. It's mine. It's my fight. You know what we need, church? We don't need more strong men and women. We don't need more strong men and women. We need more weak men and women who through their weakness will become strong in Christ. That's what we need. We don't need more, let's pretend we got this, let's hide our weaknesses, let's not discuss our failures or our difficulties, let's, let's put on this facade and act like we got it. The Bible absolutely speaks against this. 
And this is what Paul is dealing with as well. This is what we need. Look, I'll make this personal on my end. Like we, the kingdom of God collectively, do not need more pastors who have it all together and portray some sort of false sense of spirituality and stand up here and pretend that we have all the answers, that we have everything. If, if Christian ministry has taught me anything, it's taught me this much for sure. My influence with you here will last about until you get to the parking lot, if that. And if anything changes in your heart from there on, that's not me. That is a miracle from God. And what you need from me and what the church needs from other spiritual leaders, your elders, pastors, whoever they are, are men who will spend more time on their knees begging God for grace than we actually spend up here spouting off like we actually know something. That's what your family needs, dad, mom, people that get their knees dirty. That next Christmas you need new jeans because you wore the knees out in yours. That's what we need. And I'll tell you, man, I've learned this because God has brought me through seasons of failure, sorrow, misery, fear, time and time again in my office on the floor. And I don't have to go back very far like, I don't know, yesterday to say, I don't know what to do, God. I don't know what to do. Begging God for grace because it's too much for me. This is who we are to be. Guys, this is the gospel. I mean, Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not us. He says, look, we're just clay pots. That means we're fragile. We chip, we break, and we're not that fancy. It's just clay. But there's this power within us that belongs to God. That's the value. That's the thing we depend on. We don't take a clay pot and go, look at this. But it's the light and power within it that matters. And that's what we need, church. We're all just a bunch of fragile clay pots. And this is at the very core of the gospel. Because the gospel, by its very raw definition, is we are turning away from ourselves. We have come to a realization that we cannot possibly save ourselves. There is nothing we can do to atone or deal with the sin that we've committed. We have no options. We are turning from self-effort. We're turning from self-determination and from this making ourselves gods like we've tried to do so often through life. And we're saying, I have nothing else I can do but trust you for grace that you will save me. That is the gospel. That's the very foundation of what makes us Christians is a total dependence on God and a complete rejection of ourselves. And I would go so far as to say, I don't know how you get saved without that understanding. And so we as a church, then we have this tendency, and maybe it's just human nature, or maybe it's generational church and the, what it's become throughout our generations, or I, I don't know. Maybe it's just the American influence, this whole pull your up by your boot straps, but boot straps. But this idea that like we humble ourselves to get saved, then we puff ourselves up to walk this Christian life. It just doesn't work that way. If you believe in the very concept of sanctification, it means you believe by default you're not done yet and that we need God. It's not about us. This week, millions of people will write New Year's resolutions. Some of you may already have. And your New Year's resolutions will be things like, I will never do this again. I will never do that again. 
I will do this or I won't do that to improve myself in this coming year. I will do this or I won't do that to improve my position in life in this coming year. Things of that nature. The, be- the best thing you can do this year with regards to that is to start out not with I will, but I can't. To go before the Lord and say, I'm weak. I have limitations. I have frailties. And to say, Lord, in this year, my only desire is may I be at the end of 2015 more dependent on you than I was at the beginning. This is what God desires of his church. We've said this before. God raises children different than we do. Our goal when we raise children, get them out. Raise them up, get them independent, teach them how to do all their own stuff, get everything under control, get them out. It's not what God does. God wants to raise children who are more dependent on him as they grow through the years. More aware of weaknesses which drives us into the grace and mercy of God over and over and over. This is how God raises his children. And and let me say this too in closing. Don't run from your weaknesses. Don't hide. Run. Feel like you have to cover up your weaknesses because a lot of times it's those very things that God has actually designed in you for a reason. Like God didn't mess up when he made you. He knew what he was doing. And the Bible says he's made all things well. And a lot of times it's our own weaknesses or shortcomings that God uses for a specific pers- purpose that someone designed differently could not achieve. I'll give you a, a, just a beautiful, beautiful example of this. Around the turn of the century, early, early 1900s, there's a young woman over in England. She was poor, weak, frail. She's a slave girl, a servant girl in England. And she was riddled with insecurities and weaknesses, things she didn't like about herself, and and just things that were just reality about who she was that she really struggled with. One of them, this seems kind of petty, but a lot of our insecurities are this way, so we really can relate. One of them was her appearance. She was very small, and she had long, stringy, jet black hair. And for whatever reason, the people that she was in all the time, and the family that she was serving as a servant and all these things, these girls had this beautiful curly blonde hair. And, and she literally, she writes of this, how she used to see these girls with this kind of bouncy, beautiful hair. And she despised even her own appearance and would wish and wish and wish she could just be different. She didn't feel beautiful. A lot of girls struggle with that. On top of that, she was tiny, like tiny, frail, weak, very small, very frail, and totally uneducated. She's just a servant. But along the way, God puts in her this desire to want to go be a missionary. Specifically, she feels called to China, to Asia, to that area over there. And along the way, she somehow finds about an opportunity. There's a local missions organization that's there, and they're um, doing interviews for people to go do missions work over there. And so she actually goes and applies and gets an interview. So she's there before this board of all these men, old England, long coats, fake white hair, the whole thing. And she's standing before these men and they're interviewing her. And they're like, so what is it that you do? I'm I'm a servant. Okay, we'll make a note of that. Um, What are your skills? I can clean. Okay, um, clean. Do you have an education? No, just a basic, you know, elementary. I'm, I'm not very educated. Okay, not educated. Strength, you, you, Young lady, you look really small and frail, and yeah, I I am. I get hurt a lot, and I'm small, and I've just kind of always been that way. And over the course of the interview, they go through all of this different stuff, analyzing who she is, what she's done, all of this kind of stuff. And in the end, 
their assessment of this interview to her was this. Frankly, young lady, you are too small, too frail, too uneducated, and we just really don't see any place for you with us in China. And so this young woman went home. She was devastated. She goes home to her room, servants' quarters, and she takes her suitcase that she had and puts everything that she owned inside it, sets it on her bed. She takes her Bible, sets it on top of the suitcase, takes what little money she had, sets it on top of her Bible. She goes to her knees before her bed, puts her elbows on that very suitcase, and she begins to pray this exact prayer. Lord Jesus, I'm here. As far as I know, the desire in my heart to serve in China came from you. I didn't make this up. These men today said that I'm no good and have no chance. I'm too small, too frail, too dumb. But Lord Jesus, I believe that if you take me to China, I can be useful. She gets up, takes what little money she had, spends all of it on a boat ticket. I guess it's, you get tickets for boats, I guess that is, boat ticket to China. Never been, doesn't know what she's going to do, but believes in her heart that God has called her and that he's big enough and strong enough to do something with her when she gets there. So the boat heads to port. As she's pulling into the port in China, she comes from down below and walks up onto the deck and for the first time lays eyes on this land that she's been dreaming of going to, this place that she believes with all her heart God has called her to go and minister, and a shiver goes up her spine because there's thousands of people everywhere. A lot of women and children, they all have straight jet black hair. They're small, weak, and fragile. And this woman ends up being used by God to go into China. She's known to this day by the title, The Little Woman. Famous for that title. Her real name is Gladys Aylward. She became a pioneer, a revolutionary missionary who went into the deepest, most remote parts of China and started orphanage after orphanage after orphanage where she took other little, small, frail, tiny children educated them, fed them, grew them up in strength, and taught them of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. God will work through our weaknesses. And usually it's the very weaknesses we have that are the avenue through which God wants to show his grace and mercy most. So in 2015, may our, may our New Year's resolution be different. Not, I'm going to be so strong, but may I be more aware of my weaknesses that God may use them and work through me. May I be more dependent on God. May I be more aware of my need for him and more quick to turn from self and to depend on him this year. Amen? Will you stand? We're going to close in song and pray. God, this is our declaration. This is our story when we're humble enough to admit it, that it was when we were weak and frail and powerless to save ourselves that we have become aware of your gospel, and that you have saved a wretch like me. Lord, I was lost, helpless. You came for me. Lord, throughout this room, there's no one here that found you because of our strength. Lord, we received your grace as you sought us, helpless, and frail. And God, I pray that in this year ahead, may we not lose sight of that reality, that you are our strength. You are our fortress. You are our king. You are our deliverer. 
Lord, your grace has saved us, and it'll be your grace that sustains us throughout life. Lord, may we not grow to some place where we feel like we got this and we don't need to depend on you anymore, but Lord, may you draw us quickly to our knees. And so Lord, even as we sing this song, Lord, even as as Sam said earlier, may this not be one of those moments we go through, it's the closing song, let's get on with lunch, but Lord, will you receive this as a prayer from our hearts and a declaration of our great need for you, Jesus, in Jesus' name.